Welcome to Russian History Retold, Episode 156, Life on the Russian Country Estate, Part 1. Last time, we covered the final years of Leon Trotsky's life. Now, we go in an entirely different direction by covering the everyday life on a Russian country estate from the 17th century to the 20th century before the Russian Revolution. Yes, I know I had said last time that this episode would cover the life of Leo Tolstoy, but I've had to hold off on that yet again because of the delay in getting all the biographical material on the great author. It will likely be held off until spring of 2015. When those of us in the West think about a country estate, we think of a laid-back life, sitting on a porch, sipping iced tea, and living in a large manor house with servants and little to worry about. Such was not the life on a country estate in Russia, and definitely not in the early 17th century. Before the time of Peter the Great, a Russian estate was a pretty pitiful place. Muscovite Russia was a backward society, just coming out of the Mongol yoke and the time of troubles. The Romanovs had just taken over, but their hold on power was tenuous at best. The majority of people were highly xenophobic, believing anything outside of the Muscovite culture was sacrilegious and was to be shunned. They were far more Asiatic than European, having been cut off for more than 250 years. In Europe, the nobility lived in homes far more luxurious than the average peasant. Not so in Russia. Many boyars lived in houses not much better than the serfs. While that might be hard to believe, we luckily have a first-hand account made by a foreigner, one Adam Oliarius, the Duke of Holstein's envoy to Muscovy during the 1630s and 40s. His writings give us an in-depth view of what life was like back then. His opinion of a boyar of the time was not very high. As he put it, quote, The magnates even had their heads shaved, imagining this to be an ornament. However, when anyone learns that he has fallen into disgrace, he allows his hair to grow long and in disorder. All subjects, whether of high or low condition, call themselves, and must count themselves, the czars kolopi, that is, slaves and serfs. He further goes on to describe the boyars' homes as, quote, not more than three or four earthen pots and as many clay and wooden dishes. Very few people have feather beds, in lieu of which they lie on benches covered with cushions, straw, mats, or their clothes. In many winter, they sleep on flat-topped stoves. Side by side lie men, women, and children, as well as servants, both male and female. He also told of how he saw, quote, chickens and pigs under the benches and stoves. Given the state of Russia's boyar class, it is amazing that Peter the Great was able to make such a drastic change in Russian society and to the country estates. But as great of an influence he had, it could have all unraveled if the average boyar had it his way. If Peter, say, had lost to Charles Twelfth in the Great Northern War, or had been captured or killed at the Battle of Pruth in 1710, Russia would have likely turned around and gone back to its old ways. But it was the subsequent czars who had a large influence on the progression of Russian society in the country estate. Of course, Peter's wife Catherine I, but she only lived for a few years. Then you had Anna, the somewhat hedonistic Elizabeth, and most importantly, Catherine the Great shoved Russia into the European present. 
Notice it was the women empresses, starting with Peter's wife Catherine, who were to continue the transformation. Peter's grand embassy opened his and his entourage's eyes. They saw how backward Russia was and how the Orthodox Church's xenophobia held the country back. This is one reason Peter abolished the Patriarchate, replacing it with the more manageable Holy Synod. Tsar Peter dragged the Russian nobility kicking and screaming out of their Asiatic cocoon. But once they saw what they, that meant, they kind of liked what they saw. The serfs and peasants, though, they weren't so happy to see the changes, in part because it caused an expansion of serfdom due to the needs of the country estates. This would spur thousands of small rebellions and a few big ones, like the Bulavan Revolt under Peter and the granddaddy of them all, the Pugachev Rebellion under Catherine the Great. So where did the land for these country estates come from? It came in service to the Tsar. If you were in good standing and served the Tsar well, he or she would reward you in kind. Of course, the reverse could happen, and often did in the 18th century. Say, if you were a favorite of Catherine the Great, chances are her son Paul would see to it that your estates, serfs, and finances were forfeit or greatly diminished. The Romanovs believed that Russia was theirs, and it was by their grace and their grace alone that you were allowed to have anything. A real problem arose, starting with Peter and extending to Catherine II, and that was the lack of European-trained artisans, like architects. These people had to be imported, with many of the more talented ones staying in Russia and reaching a level of hereditary noble based on Peter's tab table of the ranks. This would swell those ranks of the wealthy by quite a bit. With Peter, he had to forcibly get the Russian nobility to get with the plan. Catherine II, though, had a willing generation with which to work with. And boy, did they ever get the plan. Everyone by now who was wealthy wanted to have their own country estate. And this was given to anyone who would serve the Tsar with the idea that they would build grand homes on them. Serfs were also handed out to them like candy, some receiving thousands at a time. Many of the noblemen traveled west to Europe to see what a proper country estate should look like to France, to England, Austria, and the like. Russian architects began to study the Western style. It was the Renaissance era that Russia had missed. A big feature on the Russian country estate was the garden. It was a place of beauty, but it was also a huge drain on the finances of a nobleman. One of them, the Razumovsky's Gorenki estate near Moscow, cost between 70,000 and 100,000 rubles a year to maintain which was no small sum of money. The one style of garden that seemed to entrance Catherine the Great, and therefore all her court favorites, was the British style. The French were very linear, but the British, they liked curved lines. As the Empress put it in a letter to Voltaire, quote, I'm at present madly in love with English gardens, with curved lines, gentle slopes, lakes formed from swamps, and archipelagos of solid earth and I profoundly despise straight lines. I hate fountains that torture water in order to make it take a course contrary to nature. In a word, Anglomania dominates my plantomania. Now let's move on to the people who lived on the typical Russian country estate. Of course, you have the nobleman's family, and often friends and relatives would say, 
sometimes for long periods of time. What is staggering, though, are the large number of serfs and the type of jobs they had. A normal member or number of house serfs, those of whose only job was to work in and around the home, was about 200. Many of the serfs had belonged to the families for many generations, if they were older hereditary families. The landowners felt like they owed it to their serfs to take care of them, even if their jobs were inconsequential. And some of their responsibilities absolutely seem absurd to us today. According to the book, Life on the Country, Russian Country Estate by Priscilla Roosevelt, quote, more than one landowner had a man who was responsible solely for holding his pipe and giving it to him to smoke. One mistress kept maids who were in charge of one garment. Many retained special cooks for the annual duty of making pancakes at Chauvretide. Now, the most important house serfs would have been the head housekeeper, the steward, butler, cellar keeper, and probably top person, the chamberlain. This person lorded over the lesser servants and could be an extremely cruel and corrupt person. In the truly wealthy estates, they would have about a hundred serfs just for entertainment. They could include musicians, choruses, dancers, actors, dwarfs, and fools. The fool would actually be of a very high standing, sometimes allowed to travel with the noble's family in public. The nanny was also a person of very high standing in the country estate. She would guide and educate the children, oftentimes for many generations. She was revered and very often loved as much as if not more than the children's parents. The use of a female serf for sex and pleasure was commonplace, and there were many children born of these liaisons. Some were given hereditary rights and freed. Many times they were given nothing at all. What was unusual and highly shunned was if the nobleman would take one of his female serfs as a wife. One such incident was between Count Nikolai Petrovich Sheremetev, the wealthiest person in Russia aside from the Tsar at the time. He secretly married his serf, Proskovia Kovalovia, a diva of the opera he had on his estate. He married her after a long affair in 1801 at a small church in Moscow. She had one child with him, but she was not to live much longer, dying in 1803. Then heartbroken Nikolai would die just six years later. Others who would live in and around the estates of the wealthy were either serfs or freemen, such as architects, doctors, tutors, governesses, choir masters, and the like. You can read about these people in many works of the masters of Russian literature, like Leo Tolstoy's Childhood, Boyhood, and Youth, as well as Turgenev's A Provincial Gentleman. Of course, many estates were only used during the spring and summer, with a skeleton crew staying around for the rest of the year. St. Petersburg was where many stayed in the fall and winter, with many of the estates being in the area around Moscow. When the nobles traveled between the two cities, the majority of their household would come with them. It was an amazingly grand affair to move hundreds of people back and forth. Some, like the aforementioned Nikolai Sheremetev, would go back and forth many times a year. And some, like Nikolai, had numerous estates. Aside from the house servants, there were many other serfs who dealt with the grounds and the animals within the estate. They were charged with plowing the land, seeding the fields, and harvesting them at the end of the season. 
These people had very little to no contact with the landowner, unlike the house servant who would. Next episode, I'm going to be delving into their lives much more deeply. The farms that each of the estates had supplied, not only the nobleman's family, but everyone who lived there. Of course, the owners got the cream of the crop, so to say, but everyone had to be fed. The Wilmot sisters, Catherine and Martha, were Irish women who lived for a time in Russia with Princess Dashkova at her country estate. Luckily for us, we had their diaries to peer into life among the nobles. For their meals, Catherine writes, quote, Honey with fresh cucumbers is a favorite dish. Preserved dates, apple bread, young pig and cold cream, egg patties eaten with soup, another soup made of fish, and every sort of salad. With your roasted meat, you must eat sea salt cucumbers, and then caviar made of the roe of sturgeon. Fish soup do you choose? Fowls? Game? Vegetables? Raw apples from the Crimea? Or the Siberian apples? Or the transparent apples? Or the Kiev sweetmeat? Or honeycomb? Or preserved rose leaves? Or pickled plums? In the name of goodness, eat no more. For in six or seven hours, you will have to sit down to just such another dinner under the name of supper. Now, they usually started their day with coffee at 9 a.m., about 1.30 to 2 p.m. for lunch, which could last for hours, tea at 6, and dinner at about 9.30 to 10. Between those meals, they would walk the gardens, listen to music, maybe read, basically do little or nothing at all. Not the most exciting life, but it was leisurely and quite extravagant. At many of the estates, guests from neighboring places would come as well as travelers from far away. It was considered bad etiquette to not take a noble person in if they arrived at your door. Many times charlatans would dress and act the part of a nobleman to partake in the extravagant lifestyle the wealthy enjoyed. The children, ah, the country estate for them was heaven. In the city, their life was highly regimented, with numerous rules and regulations to be followed to the letter. On the estate, they were to live a life of fun and games. They would have swings and lawn bowling, horseback riding, and other forms of amusement. Sometimes the children would be allowed to play with the children of serfs, but this was carefully monitored to make sure no harm would come to the nobles' ch children. Family parties were another common event that the children loved to participate in. Tolstoy describes such a time in his book, Childhood, Boyhood, and Youth. Quote, When we reached the Kalina woods, we found the carriage already there, and surpassing all our expectations, a one-horse cart in the middle, of which say sat the butler. We could see, packed in straw, a samovar, a tub with ice cream mold, and various other attractive-looking packets and boxes. There could be no mistake, and meant tea out of doors with ice cream and fruit, to drink tea in the woods on the grass, and where no one had ever drunk tea before, was the greatest of treats. A rug was spread in the shade of some young birch trees, and the whole company disposed themselves in a circle. Gavrilo, the butler, having stamped down the lush green grass around him, was wiping plates and taking out some of the box plums and peaches wrapped in leaves. The sun shone through the green branches. A light breeze fluttered. Another favorite thing to do on the country estate was hunting. 
This was an important ritual of all males of the noble status. They would prize their hunting dogs, borzois, and hounds in particular. Fox hunting, as well as going after all sorts of bird, were common, but the favorite targets were bear and wolves. Within the country state, it was always understood that the male member of the family was most important. The father, of course, would be the head in almost all instances. Russia, especially after the rule of Tsar Paul, made the father and the firstborn male the undisputed rulers of the family. Paul, who detested his mother Catherine, made sure that no female could ever rule over Russia again, and he made it clear that this was to be the case within each family of noble bearing. As it was with the Tsar being viewed as the Batushka, or the loving father, so too it was it with the head of the country estate. He was viewed as the stern yet loving master. Unfortunately, many serfs saw the stern side more often than the loving one. As we shall see next time, the life of the serf on the Russian country estate could be a very harsh one, full of brutality and hard work. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Don't forget to drop by the blog site where you can. If you'd like, make a donation, big or small, to keep the podcast going. Also, join us on Facebook as well, where you can ask a question, leave a message, or make a suggestion. So as always, das vidanya, ispasiva bolshoya.